Amen. Good morning, all. You want to turn to John's Gospel a moment? John's Gospel, chapter 5. For those of you here for the first time, we're, we're doing a, ser- a very short series on the Ten Commandments, only four parts, and this is part three, and the final part will be tonight. It's just kind of a refresher course, if you like, to, to keep the commandments prominent in our minds. It's been a shock to me. It's been years since I did an in-depth study on the Ten Commandments, and it's amazing what, what is actually in there. So John chapter 5 for this morning, and verse 5, I'll start there. One who was there had been an invalid for about 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for so long, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else gets in ahead of me. Then Jesus asked him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat? Uh, The man said, uh, The the, the man who was healed had no idea who he was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple. And said to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. And for this reason, and you know this next piece of scripture is astonishing. He's just healed a cripple. Jesus has just made a sick person well. And look how hard human hearts can be. Because the next verse says, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. My oh my. Somebody's been a cripple for 38 years, unable to walk. And something good happens to them. And the hearts of human beings can be so cold that even when something good happens, they turn and try to kill the source of that healing because it contravenes something that was in their mind. It's astonishing. We're looking at the Ten Commandments and the importance of them, the relevance of them for today because they, 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 they have huge significance for the amount of joy in your life, for how happy you actually are. And over the four parts to this series, I hope that you see that. The Jews were set apart and always have been for many different reasons. They don't eat meat with blood in it. It's a very wise thing to do. They don't eat pork. That's also a wise thing to do just for health. They had circumcision. They had many things that made them different from the Gentiles and the rest of humankind. But one of the most notable was this subject for this morning to begin with anyway, the Sabbath. Everybody knew that those who followed God had a special day that they set apart. And you know, today the Ten Commandments stand, but there's one commandment that is totally changed. Nine of the commandments stand in their original context and don't alter, but this one changes. This is the one out of the ten that actually alters its form completely. And because of that, 
this is also the one that probably has the greatest deal of confusion concerning it. So just very briefly, let me clear up some questions you may have, and certainly that I've encountered myself and I've seen a thousand times confusion in people's lives surrounding the Sabbath. I'll deal with it historically in the New Testament and then now today. Well, historically, plants grow seven days a week. Cows give milk seven days a week, right? Men have worked, you know, seven days a week. That was beyond question. But God said to his people, to the Jews, that he wanted them to be completely distinguished from everyone else. And one of the ways was that they were to have a day that they set apart that was for him, alone for him. And it was to be a good day. It was to be a good thing. It wasn't heavy. It wasn't hard work as such. It was, it was a good idea. It was a blessing. But my oh my, did they destroy it. The Jews took that day, the Sabbath, and they turned it into a burden. They turned it into a trial. They turned it into a test by adding lots and lots of laws into that day. And even today, we'll come to this in a moment, you, you hear people say that for some people, Christians, Sunday is the hardest day of their week. I don't like to hear that because that's pretty similar to what the Jews had done to this day of rest and we'll, we'll, we'll go into detail about what rest actually means in a moment. But the Jews added many laws that God never intended to the Sabbath. One of them was you were not allowed to eat an egg leg, led by a chicken on the Sabbath because the chicken had broken the Sabbath. Wow, naughty chicken, right? <laughs> you were not allowed to look in the mirror. Because if you looked in the mirror, you might see a gray hair. And you might be tempted to cut it, and that would be work. Well, cut more than one, you know. There were all sorts of meaningless, stupid laws, and it vexed God. Do you know when Jesus came? He completely ignored them. The rules, I mean. He broke every law in their book. He plucked corn, he helped the sheep, and they were running out of, you're breaking the law, your laws. I'm breaking your laws, not my law. You have added and added things that I never intended. I wanted this day to be a good day, a happy day. Now, it wasn't actually a day of, of rest, you know. You say to people, what did God do on the seventh day? No, he didn't. It's a misconception, you see. What he actually did was God rested from the work he was doing. In the six days of creation, he rested from that and he turned to work with that which he had created. You just read it. Jesus said, my father works to this very day and so do I. Right? After working a miracle on the Sabbath. It was a miscomprehension. You know, Sunday is not a day for us, if you like, of lying around and doing nothing. Sunday is a day to be gainfully employed in the kingdom. And that Jesus tried to point that out again and again and again. That it was a good day. Indeed, if you look in the book of Genesis, this is an interesting point. If you look in the book of Genesis, you will see in creation that there was morning and evening the first day. Morning and evening the second day. Morning and evening the third day. Until you get to the seventh, there's no evening. It doesn't end. He says, my father works until now. In other words, the seventh day, if you like, the Sabbath is a continual thing. And all through the New Testament, God tries to pull us out 
of the, the Jewish tradition that was installed by him, that's fine. But Jesus interpreted that Sabbath in a very different way. So what about the New Testament days? And this is also interesting. They, the, the Sabbath remains Saturday all through your New Testament and for centuries later. It wasn't for hundreds of years later that it became a Sunday that the Christian church actually celebrated on officially. The Sabbath remained that Saturday. So the Christians in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they actually met on a Sunday, but they met either very early in the morning or late at night because Sunday was a work day like any other day. It remained the Sabbath, you know, within Jewish society, you see. That's why Eutyches and others fall out of windows and stuff like that. But if you do a little study in, in the New Testament, you will see that Jesus talks to you and tries to completely change your perspective of the Sabbath. He tries to get you to see it that I want it to be a good day. I want you to enjoy it. It's a day just like God that you can turn from your six days of labor. You've been at the office all week or whatever when you can turn and work in the kingdom. That's what it is. A day of restful, you know, work. Work that you get energy from. So it's not a day of the week. In, in, in fact, in, in Colossians, it says, let nobody judge you about not keeping this day holy or that day holy. And in the book of Hebrews, it goes into probably great detail about the fact that this rest that we're talking about is a rest from trying to get right with God through works. That's what it actually is. It's proof that He is your God. Right? So let me just reiterate that for clarity's sake. This is what happened. God gave man a day of the week in which he was to rest from labor in the world, if you like, and work in the kingdom. It was a good thing, a blessed thing. The Jews destroyed it. By adding lots of laws to it and rules to it, they killed it. When Jesus came, he interpreted that by doing good deeds on the, on the Sabbath and trying to explain to them what it was all about. But then, as centuries go by, the same thing has happened to you and I in our day. You know, in the recent past, there was a group of people called the Puritans, you know. In the Middle Ages, there was the Reformation. And in Britain, we ended up with what we call a Victorian Sunday, a dull, strict Victorian Sunday. And that was, ne we're going back to the way the Jews had it, full of rules and regulations and laws that God never intended. Could I have my next slide, please? What we're left with in our day is three choices. We either choose legalism like the Jews did and we don't want to go there. You've got to do this, you've got to do that. We go the route of license and that is that we would use a Sunday in our case for anything we wanted to do. We don't want to do that. And what the Bible clearly tells us, please get a proper perspective on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not one day. The Sabbath should be every day, but by all means, let's set, set apart a day, which we, in our traditions, it's Sunday, and let's have liberty to do work in the kingdom. And goodness knows, Sunday's certainly my busiest day, and it is too for most of you, right? That's our liberty. We choose to do that. We don't obey this commandment because we have to, we obey it because we want to. Okay? Isn't it, hasn't it been confused and abused, the understanding of that, because of the religious nature of man? So that's what the Sabbath is. The next commandment, the, the fifth commandment, is honor thy father and thy mother. If you look at Luke's gospel a moment, Luke's gospel in chapter 2. Luke's gospel 
chapter 2 and verse 41. It's the famous story of Jesus and how he honored his parents, even as a child and then as an adult. Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, see that? When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for another day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now look at this. You would think Jesus was disobeying one of the commandments here at first reading. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house or in your version? It may say, I had to be about my father's business. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And look at verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Parental authority is under huge attack in our day. And that piece of scripture that you just read has been misused a thousand times over. People say, look, see, Jesus was a naughty boy. Jesus ran away. Parents couldn't find him. And at first reading, it can seem a little bit like that. But let me explain, because it's, it's very important that we don't take that perspective, because that's not what's happening. Jesus is 12 years old, right? can't remember what verse that was. It says, when he was 12. Now, what happens to Jew when he's 12? The bar mitzvah. Every Jewish boy is presented in the temple at 12 years old. And that boy reads from the scriptures, reads from the scrolls, and he comes in a boy and he goes out a man. Now, they mean a man. A man in every sense. A man who, if the father in that house had a business, a Jewish boy at 12 years old becomes a partner in the business, in his father's business. Now, if you look closely at what happened there, look at verse 48. Mary comes back to Jerusalem to try and find him. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I. You see that? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 49, Why were you searching me? I had to be about my... So there's a change, a slight change of authority taking place here. Jesus is transitioning from being a boy in that house under Joseph's authority. He's now 12. He's gone through his bar mitzvah. He comes out and he goes straight about his heavenly father's business. Right? And it seems to me anyway that Mary didn't fully understand what was happening. But that would have probably been the first time Mary knew that she was carrying the son of God. An angel appeared to her, told her all that would be. But I don't think she told Jesus. I think she treasured it in her heart. And as Jesus grew up, she would have been wondering, 
what's going to happen and when. And then he gets to 12 and there's a transition. They can't find him. They go to the temple. And for the first time, Mary, understand this. I know who I am. I have to be about this father's business. And it says that she left and she treasured that in her heart. And basically, Jesus was not rebellious. He was coming of age, which, as I say, for the Jews was 12. It was his bar mitzvah. So there's lessons to be learned in here. Not only was he obedient as a child to his parents, but now as he turns a man within their culture, it says that in verse 51, then he went down to Nazareth with them and he was obedient to them. And because he was obedient to them, he grew in wisdom and stature. You know, there's no place in your life for disrespecting your parents. Even if they are, have been bad, and sadly we meet plenty of people and, you know, who come from that sort of background where they've been misused, abused by their own parents, but they're still your parents. And there's still a place where you must honor them all the more when they're kind to you and a blessing to you. But you must honor them. And Jesus sets a very good example here. And the first thing he shows us, honor them when you're a child, but it doesn't stop there. Now he's growing up. Now he's a man. He returns with them and he submits to them. And because he submits to them, the result is that he himself grows in wisdom and stature. And I would say this to the parents here. If you intend for your children to honor you, you had best be honorable. And don't make it hard for them. Don't give them excuses. Goodness knows children are looking for excuses, aren't they? To point the finger, ha, dad, ha, mom. You know, we had best be very honorable. So first, the, 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 the Sabbath can be a confusing thing. Let's make it a good thing in our day, right? Fifthly, honor your parents wherever they are on the earth. If you're away from home, keep in contact, write, give, bless, etc., etc., and follow in the pattern that Jesus sets for us. And then the sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. One of the strangest invitations to preach I ever had in my life was I got a phone call from an all-girls boarding school, 300 girls, for the family, the, the children of politicians and diplomats in the Cotswolds in England, out in the middle of nowhere in the countryside. And would you come and preach? I said, yeah, no problem, I'll come and preach. What do you want me to speak about? And they said down the phone, thou shalt not murder. I thought, what's going on down there? <laughs> Somebody dead or what? It was a very strange thing. I thought, okay, I'll preach on thou shalt not murder. And I remember going to the scriptures and looking at that commandment really seriously for the first time in my life. And I was shocked at what I found. For a start, do you know that the commandment doesn't say thou shalt not kill? It says thou shalt not murder. The first thing I discovered was there was a difference in the two. Killing can be lawful. Like during the Second World War, if you happen to see Hitler, you know, you could, you could that's not murder. That's not murder in anybody's book. God's or man's. That's lawful, rightful killing. And it's a completely different thing in the commandments. It says thou shalt not murder. And what it means by that is unlawful killing, either unlawful under God or unlawful within your society. 
right? So thou shalt not murder is the command. So let's get that clear because there are times as a country when you have to go to war, right? There's times when that is crucial. And even in your Bible, you will see that God himself instructs again and again to go to war. This is a terrible thing, but it's nonetheless true. But start by asking yourself a simple question. Why is it wrong to kill someone? Why is it wrong? What's wrong with it? The humanists would give you a, you know, a typical sort of argument from their perspective. They would say, oh, well, you know, you can steal somebody's food. He'll get some more. You can steal somebody's coat. They can buy another one. But if you take someone's life, you've taken that which cannot be replaced here, right? It's the ultimate theft. And the humanists would say, that's why it's wrong to kill someone. Do you know what, guys? It's not what the Bible says. It's not the reason. The reason the Bible gives why murder is wrong, there's only one reason in here, and it's called sacrilege. And what that means, it's a bit like in this country. Have you ever seen a stamp within Britain? It has what on it? The head of the queen. And it is a crime in Britain to deface the head, the image of the queen, the image of a monarch. That's a crime. Man is made in the image of God. And murder is a sin and it is listed there in the Ten Commandments because when you murder someone, you deface that man who was made in the glorious image of God. It is a sin first and foremost against God. Now that's about as far removed from the humanist argument as you can imagine, isn't it? We exist for the glory of God. We exist for Him. We're here for Him. It's all actually about God, right? So it's sacrilege. But killing still takes place, and this is a commandment that many will have huge problems over. Could I have my name? Oh, you've got it up. Thank you. Medical killing, social killing, and personal killing. Three categories in which killing takes place, and they're all very sensitive, especially in this church where we have so many doctors here, medical doctors, and I... I hope I proceed this morning with sensitivity because I don't want to upset anyone unnecessarily. These are very sensitive issues. What do I mean by medical killing? Well, we mean euthanasia and we mean abortion. Two things of, of huge relevance today. See, the commandments do have relevance in the last days. Huge relevance like never before. Do you know, please look at me a moment. Your grandfather, not great-grandfather, not great-great-grandfather, your grandfather would not believe that we pull a child out of the womb. It wasn't possible. It's only been possible for about 70 years or whatever, 60, 70 years. Abortion is a modern medical technique. It was unheard of. And in the 1950s and 1960s, they began to say and discover that they could actually carry out this operation. And they asked themselves some ethical questions, began mostly in America. And they said where a mother was going to die. Is it ethical? Could we remove the child? Is it right? And they passed a law. And that law was this, that it was right under some circumstances to remove the child from the womb. And they said they would only use it in extreme circumstances. Well, what happened? That opened the floodgates all the way until this day where we now have partial birth abortion where the child is nigh on fully grown and they chop that child to pieces in the womb. You see, 
It opened the floodgates. And we become so used to it. And we don't even you know, understand how, how grievous this is to God. It's actually the God of Molech. It's a demon that this is behind all of this. But what is medical killing? And what is our stance as believers on it? Well, let's look at euthanasia first. Where does you, this is a very you know, popular topic at the moment within Britain. 115 people, I think it is now, have traveled to mainland Europe for mercy killing. So if you start to get a little bit dozy, you know, start to forget where you put your keys, right, he's a candidate here for <laughs> quick job, you know. Mercy killing. Now, I worked in... Uh, uh, j- 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 just so you understand, I worked, as you know, I worked in a mental hospital. Man, there were some cases in there. Some people, I remember one guy called Malcolm. Malcolm was in such pain, such agony all day, all night. His jaw used to rattle and he would hop around. He was completely restless. I felt so sorry for Malcolm. One day I got a phone call telling me, you know that Malcolm died? And my first word, <laughs> praise God. Because did he suffer? He suffered all day long. The poor guy's mentally ill and mentally handicapped. I'm delighted that he's dead and he's out of his misery. And so you've got this dilemma, you see. But no matter how bad that pain or whatever is, we can't take life. Life ultimately belongs to God. And you may thank God that you're not in the position of many with motor neurone disease or whatever. Friends, let me explain to you what happens. Someone gets cancer or whatever and they go to hospital. And they can't treat the cancer anymore. What do they start giving them? Morphine. Now the morphine will kill you after a while. But the pain of the cancer is so great, or whatever your disease might be, that they increase the morphine. And then they increase it, increase it in full knowledge that the morphine is going to kill you. Okay? Now the day comes when you're crossing the line and the doctor gets his pen and he's writing the death certificate and on the death certificate, what does he write the cause of death? Cancer. But it wasn't. It was a morphine. Now, am I saying don't treat people? No, of course I'm not. I understand that. I want you to understand that it's not a simple dilemma. It's a very complex dilemma. We nursed Jeanette's mum at home and I saw this firsthand. But what can we do? We were praying for healing, praying for her to come through that as the morphine was increased. And it was a, a tragedy of a situation. These are not simple circumstances. But the, the way it's going is when you open the door on euthanasia, believe me, I'm not joking, if you start down, look, look how quick they moved on abortion. It's beyond comprehension that they would be doing what they're doing today. So the bottom line is this. Thou shalt not murder. And that means the taking of any life under any circumstances. Right? Now, would I approve morphine? I would pray for healing. But I wouldn't condemn the doctors in, in those situations. They're trying to do what they do. And I fully understand that. And I don't want anybody going on any unnecessary guilt trip. That's not what I'm saying But God alone has the right to take life in that regard. Now you've got abortion. Once again, it's, it's overtaken. You see, there's a difference between us as the church and the medical world. Largely speaking, and I'm generalizing around the globe at the moment, right? But largely speaking, the medical world would say that life doesn't exist where there is no breath. So when a baby is stillborn and has never breathed, it doesn't get a name. And it never legally became a human being. It didn't exist because it never breathed. 
And some Christians would even push that line. When God created Adam, remember, he had no life until he... And some argue that that fetus is a fetus. It actually has no life in it until it breathes. But the problem for us as believers is that in the book of Jeremiah, and also you see in the life of Jacob and Esau, is that God spoke to Jeremiah and says, before you were even formed, I knew you. So he was a human being then. He was a human being. And so we, and I believe this with with all my heart, we take the stance that life does not begin at birth anyway. And breath in the lungs is not the definition of life. Conception is. You understand? Conception is the definition of life. That is a crucial, crucial stance that we must take. And I hope we uphold it. I know there's many movements around the world fighting hard for that stance to be upheld. Let's not make the same mistake with euthanasia that we made with abortion. Amen? Because we will open the floodgates to who only knows what. These are the last days. It said that sin would abound. I tell you, I repeat, your grandfather would never have believed the multiplied millions of murders a day through abortion. And it says in the last days, sin will abound. But we're so used to it, we don't see it. We're so used to it. And let me just repeat what I said a few Sundays ago. These are ancient spirits. Ancient spirits, the same thing, they change their form over time. But it's the same demons, whether it's Babylon or Molech. In the Old Testament, there was a god called Molech, which was a great big belly, you know? Great big stomach in it with a fire, a furnace in it. And the women would be required to take a newborn baby, and they had to walk up to Molech and throw the baby into the furnace without saying a word. And this form of worship came all the way down through centuries. And today it's the same thing. You see, the woman goes to the abortion clinic. She's told to sit. Shh, don't say a word. Just sit there and it will all be... Shh. It's the same thing in a different form. And we as the church need to hold the flag for what is right. Thou shalt not murder. These things come in, they creep in, they grow up around us and we become so accustomed to them that we can't tell right from wrong anymore. We've lost the parameter. We've lost the measuring rod, which was the Ten Commandments. We've lost the, the, you know, the, the measuring stick on our way. So we need a revival in the commandments. Thou shalt not murder. And I don't say that lightly and I do understand the pains and the agony that we find ourselves in as our relatives die or whatever, and certainly cancer treatments. So medical killing, it, it creates a dilemma for us and one we should be vocal into. Then you've got social killing. And that, by, by, by that I mean the death penalty. Some countries have the death penalty. It was always in God's society. Wherever he had a structure, he always employed the death penalty. And there's all sorts of things you can look into that in your own time. But the last one, when I went to that college in the Cotswolds, this is the one I actually focused on. Personal killing. Because this is the one that shocked me probably the most when I looked at the commandment, thou shalt not murder. You know when I heard that commandment, a bit like most of you, I thought to myself, well that doesn't apply to me. Because I've never killed anybody. Well Jesus dealt with that. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. I soon found out that it did talk about me. Matthew chapter 5. And had a lot more to do with me than I ever would have 
thought. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. Jesus talking about that very commandment. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, here he is again, just like he interpreted the Sabbath. Now he's interpreting this commandment also. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say that anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, you fool, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And Jesus takes that commandment, thou shalt not murder, and he goes right to the heart of it. Now, please, guys, look at me. Before you start saying, not guilty, shalt not murder, you must be kidding. Not guilty. Jesus says, hang on a minute. You can wish someone dead. And you're guilty of murder. You can have unjust anger. Be so angry. At someone, remember, Christianity is different in the world because of this one principle. It's thought for the deed. That's what really distinguishes us in terms of, you know, the moral law. That's what makes us different. Jesus takes the thought for the deed and no other faith has that same rule. And he's applying that right here. If you're unjustly angry at a brother in your heart, even wishing them dead, then it is as you are guilty of murder. And I had to think back over my life. I say, oh, dear me. Do you know what? I've had a few run-ins in my time. I need to say, sorry, God. Do you remember that incident? When I was so mad. I'm sorry, God. I've broken your law. I have broken your law. And then if I didn't break it at that point, he goes on to say some astonishing things. The English gets so mixed up, he uses the word raka, the word fool. But let me tell you what he says. He says this, this might shock you. If you're a snob, you can be guilty of murder. What? That's quite a few out there, Lord. If you're, what do you mean by that, Lord? Do you know what he means? Do you know the heart of the law? It means if you're walking down the street and there's someone lying at the roadside and they've got Improper clothing, they're stinking and they're smelly, and you go, excuse me. It is as if you dismissed the life. It is as if you treated that life made in the image of God as something that is worthless, and that is murder. A light-hearted dismissal of another. Snobbery, arrogance. These things he saw as murder, and he goes on to finish in some versions, it says, and downright abuse. When we abuse others or we kill their character with gossip, with speech, it is murder. I'm going to deal with this tonight. When we speak about one another, he calls that murder. Slander, in fact, the word blasphemy in Scripture most often refers to gossip. I think 17 times, and it's only twice it refers to God. Right? 15 times it refers to blasphemy each other, murdering each other. Are the Ten Commandments relevant? <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. The, the, the devil tries to destroy them, to demean them, to take our joy. Joy's the target. He's a good father, giving good laws and boundaries like any father, knowing how to make his child happy. 
If you obey this and that, you'll be joyful. If you don't, it will take your joy. And there's an almighty battle on for the reverence of your heart towards these God's own laws. Let me invite the worship team back. And as we do, you consider just the three commandments. We'll look at three more tonight or four tonight. The Sabbath. And I would ask you to consider your Sunday and keep it a day of restful activity. God works on the Sabbath. As Jesus said, I work even until now doing good. I would ask you if your father and mother, if you're in any way out of odds with them, if you haven't spoken to them, follow the example of Jesus, whether they have been good or bad. Make peace with your mum and dad. As far as it is as possible with you. I know some people are so you know, disagreeable, they wouldn't make peace with you. But if it's possible on your part, in order to honor God, make peace with your parents. And repent of that if it's an issue in your heart. And lastly, murder is something that applies to me. Because I've been so angry at some folks in my time that you could wish they weren't here, you know? And I've got to reflect over my life and think, God, God forgive me. And may I respect mankind who's been made in your image. Stop. Thank you for listening to today's program. I trust you have been blessed and edified by what you've heard. I want to ask you to do something, and that is to become a partner with us here at Preparing the Way. By doing so, you can help us to take these essential messages out to many other nations, many other people around the world. You can become a partner by visiting our website, preparingtheway.tv, and there you will find many ways that you can join up. Folks, it is a pleasure and an honor to partner with you in bringing in the end times harvest. God bless you, and once again, thank you for listening.